welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 369 and part one of our annual Percussive Art Society International Convention Preview. Let's get right to it. As has been the tradition here at Pete's Percussion Podcast, we will do a two-part preview to upcoming performances, clinics, and presentations that will occur at PASIC 2023, taking place in person this week, November 8th through the 11th in Indianapolis, Indiana. In full transparency, every year I get in touch with many folks, hoping they will stop by on the podcast, and I'm happy that some of those folks agree to do so. As has also been the case, all of these guests that I will preview here will have their own dedicated full episodes that will be released on our normal schedule starting the week after PASIC. The format this year is that I have eight guests joining me for this year's preview episodes, and I'll separate them into those that present on Thursday, today, and then tomorrow I'll release the episode featuring those presenting at PASIC on Friday and Saturday. And these will occur in order of their presentations on those days. We've got five guests for episode one, so let's get to it. We'll start with E. Jen Fong. E. Jen is the professor of percussion at the University of Virginia, and she will be performing the work Dois Gestos, a.k.a. Two Gestures, a marimba and vibraphone duo by composer Andre Mamari with Northern Illinois professor Greg Beyer as part of the New Music Research Day at 9 a.m. Eastern Thursday in room 120. This is the time slot I refer to as the prime slot to get your performance done and then enjoy the rest of the conference. So congrats to them. Here's E-Gen discussing this work. How did you come in contact with this composer? Actually, uh, it was Greg that he is in the consortium that this piece was being commissioned. Um, yeah, because he has the tie with the Brazilian school because he was he ha- he has his Fulbright uh, in Brazil and and now he has a Brazilian wife. Uh, so <laughs> um, yeah, so it's throughout his um, connection, and I just I happen to be working with him since 2018, and that's why when we want to put um, a duet together, he's like. Would you like to play this new piece that haven't been done before? And of course, the pandemic and stuff, you know, we didn't really premiered until he came to UVA in 2022. What's your connection to Greg? So uh, we have this very nice festival in town. And so it's just called Charlottesville Chamber Music Festival. And the director's, they were born here and raised here, but both the directors are musicians in Europe. They actually live in Europe now, but they still come back to town at least once a year just to uh, host this chamber music festival. And Greg was uh, one of the musicians that invited to come in 2018. And that's when I was able to meet with him. Uh, yeah, because that year we need a trio. So usually it's like solo percussion person or duo percussion person needed for the festival. And that year we actually did a uh, trio 
that it's been a pleasure since then to work with Greg. Tell me about the piece. Is is do you know if this composer you were saying that primarily writes for piano, but this is not? Is this a, a transcription or is it actually an original piece for two percussions? Yeah, it's an original piece written for percussion. Uh, the composer himself is a pianist, so you can tell the piece almost sounds like could be done by two piano in a way, <laughs> mm-hmm. or like an intensive one player playing all four parts. Uh, so they were at first when we see the you know the music, it was like. Oh, I'm not sure it can be done on marimba, you know, that type of thing. I'm yeah. actually playing vibraphone and Greg is playing marimba. Uh, but there were things like, so I think there were several revisions throughout the time. The Brazilian uh, percussionists who are lead, who were leading the consortium, they actually uh, also premiered uh, like 2022, 29, I can't remember the year per se, but so I think their version and the version we're doing is slightly different um, because once I already learned the first version, I'm like, I don't know if I want to change it. So so I think there are several versions floating around. <laughs> yeah. When you're t- talking about kind of the, diff- it sounds like the difficulty level uh, is is kind of up there. So what kinds of things make it, and I know that you have a piano background as well, but what kinds of things make it so that you're like, okay, how can you tell that it's 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 a pian- someone who's written mostly for piano that is kind of translating it? Yeah, for example, like if it's for the marimba part, you know, like it's much easier. You just move your arms like go to different ranges yeah, yeah, for, yeah. you know for marimba player you, we have to actually maybe jump and mm-hmm. and the position yeah like it's just uh, harder to get to the notes when it's like a big jump and also they are very 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 fast passages it's much easier if you just use finger through them right, yeah, right. But then, yeah, yeah. when we only have like four mallets it's like Okay, and then we usually very, very fast and closed uh, linear version motion. You want to just use two mallet, and it's like way faster than, you know, normal playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so so those are the, some of the part. And then there's a lot of uh, like double stops on both hands together, yeah. mm-hmm. which is easier. You can switch fingers when you have those. Right, right on piano, but we only have four mallets, and then we can't switch to the other set of four. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's when you keep doing the double stops on the fast tempo. That's kind of crazy as well. But yeah, what well, is is all of that also kind of involved in the vibraphone part that you're playing? Just all of these different with even a smaller range. I would assume it's still some of the same issues, right? Yeah, the double stop was actually more on the vibraphone part. Yeah. And also the uh, fast passages on both marimba and vibraphone part. So, yeah. Is there anything that's, uh, I mean, it's because this is by a composer who's Brazilian, is there anything that's specific to Brazilian style that's in this piece? Uh, I think just some harmonies has a little bit of a, it's a little kind of a little jazzy in a way. And mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't say it's like a typical Brazilian sound. I don't know 
exactly what that would be. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it has the feeling of like a Brazilian nightclub sounding sometimes, oh, yeah. and uh, and the the time is like five oh, a or throughout five a and then six a and then three a. You know, like yeah. mixed meter and yeah, so. It's it's a very fun piece to work on, and then I think it's a fun piece to listen to too. So, is this a world premiere, or is this a piece that you've already gotten to play with Greg? Yeah, so uh, we did a we did a consortium world premiere in twenty twenty two. Yeah, twenty yeah we did that twenty twenty two April. We did one movement. We did the first movement April twenty twenty two, and then we did both movement. September 2022. Gotcha. Yes. I think that's right. <laughs> it's like after pandemic, all my years and date just kind of like very vague. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after you played it, was there any anything that needed to be sent back or could you consider changing this or was it, has there been any kind of uh, collaboration since then about the piece or is it kind of, we're good. Yeah, I, Actually the fun, fun thing is Greg actually went to Brazil mm-hmm. this past summer and he played with other Brazilian percussionists on the piece. So they have done some like, more rebuttal and then some change some of the tempo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tempo was fairly fast because on my on piano is much easier. Yeah. And so we tried to do that tempo, you know, in 2022. But then he came back and like, hey, I did this like a chill beginning, you know, tempo and I like it. And then so this is what we are going to experiment um, for PASIC. And we haven't done the changing of the tempo. Uh, as a duet yet because we haven't seen each other uh but i'm going to um denton before PASIC because he's actually he has his sabbatical uh this semester so he's in denton right now because that's where his wife teaches and so i'm going to go to denton and rehearse with him and have a recital he's going to have his recital and i'll play two pieces on his recital uh, so we're going to experiment with the tempo that he's talking about when, yeah, when no- November comes a week yeah, yeah. before basic. But since the theme for the new m- music research this year was uh, like a lot, not Latin American pieces. And so it just worked out. Like we were lucky, like, oh, we are actually working on this piece. And the Fabio, one of the person on the committee for organizing Organi- mm-hmm. one of the organizers for the new mu- music this year, he's like, you guys are doing that piece. You guys should put in a proposal. So, yeah, so that's why we're like, oh, cool. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. It is nice when the timing works out and you think of all the times it never works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because every year it's a different topic. You never right. know what you're working on will fit topic or not. So it works out well. <laughs> Next up is Tim Fierst. Tim is professor of percussion at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and he's a return guest. Check out his episodes from 2021. And he'll be presenting at 10 a.m. Thursday in Room 205 on Multi-Percussion Fundamentals. 
practice strategies for any piece. Here's Tim returning to the podcast to talk about his upcoming clinic. This is a really unique fundamentals clinic because in the past you have seen fundamentals clinics that were for snare drum or for mallets or for timpani or accessories. And I'm really grateful to the education committee, to PAS, to be able to present my multi-percussion fundamentals clinic. The specific title of this is called Practice Strategies for Any Piece. It's kind of interesting and kind of the way that this idea came about was that I remember Todd Meehan at Baylor always talks about how you need to learn the instrument and not the repertoire, how you need to have fundamentals on all these instruments that we practice. And with all of these different instruments that we have, we have stick control by George Stone. We have Lee's book, Method of Movement. We have Saul Goodman's Modern Method for Timpani and such. But for the instrument of multi-percussion, a lot of it is at the mercy of that repertoire. So we, so in many ways, we have to learn the repertoire in order to learn the instrument. And so what this clinic is designed to do is embark on this journey of explaining how to build fundamentals with multi-percussion while recognizing that the content of each piece is going to be different. A little teaser, I can't give all of it away because I want everybody to come see the session, but I always found that there were two main obstacles with learning multi-percussion solos. There is getting comfortable with the setup, and then there's getting comfortable with the score. I mean, you and I both know that percussion notation is not universal, and it never will be. Well, maybe give or take 400 years of development like other instruments out there have had, like piano and violin and so forth and so on. But what it is kind of designed to do is talk about ways to get used to the notation of a multi-percussion solo. And then also on the kinesthetic side, get used to the physical uh, physical logistics with a multi-percussion setup, whether you're playing a small, uh, mul- a small condensed uh, piece like Bone Alphabet or XY or something very large like Zyklus or Rogashanti. I, I like the idea of this uh, clinic because it's a fundamentals verse. Is there... I know I've asked this of people who do who've done these clinics in the past. Is there a charge that you, you are given by the committee or whoever is deciding on this because it's in this uh, realm, you know, like in terms of the kind of a fundamentals portion, are there strictures? Are there things that they want you to address as part of your presentation? What I'm going to try to do in my clinic is find opportunities to have participants interact. Uh, there's a one part, uh, spoiler alert, where you get to improvise on the setup that I'll be using. And by the way, the canvas for this is a piece that uh, my good friend, Corey Robinson, who teaches at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, Texas, wrote for me called Time Intermittent. And I premiered it on my faculty recital when I was on faculty at the University of Utah. And so that'll be the canvas for this and will be sort of the example piece. So finding opportunities to really interact with the audience so that it's not strictly an academic lecture yeah. and such. And because, and there, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a time and place for this. And what this is, is basically what I'm trying to do is kind of elevate the educational aspects of multi-percussion instruments, which is something that 
has kind of become organically a passion of mine. Although I will say that there are books out there like Nick Petrella's book. Uh, Andy Blitz has a book called Multitudes that has multiple multi-solos that are written for the same instrument. Brett William Dietz has Reflex, uh, which is a collection of multi-percussion solos that are progressive. It starts from two instruments all the way to seven, eight, nine instruments. So I guess what I what my clinic is is sort of different ways to think about things, but also addressing different learning strengths and such. So if you're more of a visual learner, there is a solution there. If you're more of a of an aural learner, there's another solution there. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. You're dealing with a uh as you mentioned in an idea that is not that we're at the mercy of uh, obviously yeah. what the composer has written, what's available. What are the ways that if someone is starting out and they're and and they're like they're they're doing and you're kind of making the case, okay, if you're playing like a snare drum and a tenor drum, like that's multi-percussion. Like so, you know, you kind of can go from like easy to or to, to extremely elaborate, but what are the ways that you think about building up somewhat like a, a, a sequence, we'll say? Um, because it because it could be an instrument amount, but it could also just be one thing's not that hard and one thing's really hard. I think the first thing is that, you know, something that Ed Sof would always talk about is that in order to mul- in order to master multiple surfaces, you need to first master one surface. And so one of the things that I talk about in terms of getting comfortable with the setup is taking sticking patterns from stick control, that very first page with the single beat combinations, and basically arranging it for your setup, not only doing single strokes, but also double strokes and such. I remember when I was working on a sangha for my second DMA recital at University of North Texas, and that piece has a page and a half and, and two pages of nonstop 16th notes with all these different patterns. And Kevin Voland is not a percussionist, so he didn't really write something that fit on the instrument. And so because of that, I had to use a lot of a lot of double stickings. Another thing that I talk about is the one and one drum and around speaking of tenor drums, you know, tenors always talk about playing on one drum, getting comfortable with that and then mapping it, then mapping it around the drums. And I just feel like that's so important. So in terms of expanding out to other instruments, it's also important to kind of be aware and of what the function of the music is. So if you take something that is like Anvil Chorus, for instance, by David Lang, where you have an ostinato and then you have and then you have a left hand melody. They are going to function, those instruments are going to function differently. One's going to be melo- one's going to be melodic and one's going to be accompaniment, and also factoring in the acoustic properties of that as well. So for instance, a bongo is going to cut a lot more than a tom. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this yesterday. Zanakis Rabans B has that bongo ostinato, and then you have these toms and these bongos that are being played. You have to really, really reduce the sound of the bongos, even if it doesn't necessarily reflect that in the dynamics that are written in the piece. Right. And then the other thing, too, is that if you have the flip side of that coin is that if you have all these different instruments, even if they all have different acoustic properties, 
but they function as one single line. Like for instance, in Dave Holland's Cold Press, how you have that digga 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 da, digga 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 da, digga 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 da, which was the bane of my existence in my undergrad. It's a great piece, but oh boy, did I spend a lot of time on that. But not just, being, and, you, and you mean not just setting it up, like actually playing it too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you have to make sure that you get the best sound. But not only that, also have the sounds blend together. Yeah. Because dynamics, it's about the output of sounds. I'm not, when I see mezzo forte, it's not a mezzo forte input. It's a mezzo forte output. And so I have to keep that in mind. And there are other factors like the hall, the room that you're going to be in. The practice room is going to have very different acoustics than the concert hall. So I think it's the music also really being fluent in stick control and also some one drum and around, uh, around methods as well. Those are some of the things that I will be suggesting in my clinic. Gotcha. Will there be elements where you're dealing with multiple mallets, you know, like, like four mallet playing or, or that you have just different implements in the hands. For the purposes of this clinic, the, Use of four mallets is going to be outside of this because the piece that I'm using only requires two mallets. And, but I can speak to it very quickly that the best piece of advice I can have is learn all the different grips because I remember being in a musical pit and having to do a one handed suspended cymbal roll. And I had to, and I had a microsecond to pick up the mallets. So I didn't have time to be like, okay, inside mallet and the fleshy part of the pond and that's in there underneath, you know, and build up the Stevens grip. I said, no, screw it. I'm going to use Burton grip. Or if the mallets were uh, on top of each other in a different way, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use cross grip. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So being able to learn the different, the different grips. And actually there were, there were times where I was playing not to get on too much of a tangent, but there were times where I was playing Stevens grip in one hand Mm-hmm. because like for a one-handed suspended cymbal roll, because I felt I got more independence with Steven's grip. And then I was playing two toms, for instance, with my left hand with Burton grip, because it was a lot easier for me to not flam that entrance. So I was using Burton grip in one hand and Steven's grip in the other. And I wasn't struck by lightning. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you at? And this is a little bit beyond the scope, I'm I'm sure. But w- kind of where are you? where do you think we're at in terms of where literature is for multi-percussion. I feel like there is a lot of fantastic repertoire out there from a difficulty standpoint. And I'm of the philosophy that nothing is difficult. It's just time consuming. So, but for the sake of this statement, I'll just say difficult, the, the difficult spectrum. So I feel like there's a lot of fantastic repertoire out there. A lot of it is really difficult. You take a look at Raban's, Rokashanti, Safa, Ziklus, King of Denmark. It's a lot of very involved instruments. And then you also have on the opposite end of that, when even some things like very beginning multi-percussion etudes, sometimes they're pretty well written. And other times they kind of give you what I like to call the Barney the Dinosaur treatment, where it's like this very simple rhythms, but they kind of insult your intelligence at the same time it's just like <laughs> okay hit the drum right there and then it was up there and stuff like that so i feel like there are solid foundations on on both on both ends of the spectrum and i think that middle area of having good uh, balancing good quality repertoire but of course this is my own opinion what i perceive as good quality repertoire yeah. with with 
a approach an approachable difficulty level. That's why I really, really love Brett William Dietz's book Reflex, because he's been able to make all of these solos and have a progression through them. And as a matter of fact, that's actually part of my curriculum at UNC, where as part of their sophomore barrier, they have to play one of those solos out of Brett's book. I'm just uh, extremely excited and extremely honored to be sharing that, to be sharing this idea with people. This is something that I've helped. And, you know, Pete, you were there at NCPP when you saw the beginnings of this presentation uh, at Texas Tech when Lisa was hosting us there. And so just being able to think about it and to be able to expand upon it, because one of the things that I'm passionate about as a teacher is finding different ways to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. because that's one of the things we need to do as educators. If I only talk about the things that work for people with one set of learning strengths and not expand into the ones that are of the other learning strengths, then, you know, then that means that I'm not doing my job. And right. so being able to really brainstorm about this and think, okay, if somebody's more of a visual learner, what could, what could benefit them? What have I seen benefit students and so forth and so on. So I'm really excited. I'm really honored to be sharing this clinic. And I'm extremely grateful to Progressive Arts Society, to Oliver Molina and the PAS Education Committee and and the entire executive committee for this great honor. Next up is Sean Matavetsky. Sean is an educator and performer who specializes in tabla performance and is based in Montreal. He teaches at McGill University and freelances all over the world. Sean will be presenting Thursday at 11 a.m. in room 109, and his clinic is titled Wired, Exploring the Vast Possibilities of Tabla with Effects Pedals. Sean also wanted me to pass along to you all that he'll be hanging out Saturday at 11.30 a.m. at the Timpano Kohlberg booth in the Expo Hall. So stop by and say hi to him then. Here's Sean talking about his upcoming clinic. Uh, so the last few years, I've been uh, exploring that as a way of uh, expanding, let's say, the, the timbral sonic palette of what the public can do. Um, always been interested in electronic music, uh, but didn't want to get involved with like programming, like Max MSP, that kind of stuff effects pedals, guitar pedals, basically, right? Very hands on, easy not that expensive unless you go for a lot like boutique stuff. Uh, so a very accessible way of getting into electronics. So I'll be presenting with Tabla, but of course it's applicable for any percussion instrument. Got it. So what are the ways in that you've, uh, you've gotten into the electronic side of your performing? Okay. So I, I've worked a lot with composers, like over the last 20 something, 25, 30 years, I guess I've been playing a lot of pieces by composers, uh, whether written for me or written for other people, like I'm sure lots of percussionists have done. Uh, and over the last few years, I've been wanting more and more to play my own music, to try my own things out. I also been doing a lot of improv, whether you want to call it free improv or the improvisation we have in Indian music, um, and wanting to kind of bring that together. And of course, like a lot of us, the pandemic provided some time to explore other avenues and different things. And this was one thing that I really wanted to to get into, um, the idea of processing Tabla with the, with effects pedal. So I got into that 
And it's actually very, very addictive. It's very dangerous for percussionists in a way because, you know, we like to acquire things, right? Oh, that could be a useful sound. Oh, I, I can see I can use that for something, right? So this starts to happen with pedals, right? You get one, you get two, you get three. And then before you know it, you have like 10. Um, and then something new comes out, you know, and then there's always more. Um, right. So at first it was just trials, you know, just testing things out, uh, nothing live, you know, just at home. Um, I participated in something online last year called January. So it's in the month of January, post a video every day of some exploration. And that was actually very interesting. It was actually hard to do, you know, to every day, you know, to go through that creative exercise every day to post something original. Um, so that was probably my first kind of big, like public, you know, performance in a way, even though it was virtual, um, just started posting these things. Because um, I know for a lot of people, they see, okay, Sean, yeah, he does this. He does Indian music, he accompanies dance, this and that. And people know I do contemporary music too. And I play with orchestras and things like that. But this this was a, a new avenue, right? So I didn't know how people would react, but people are pretty receptive. And some new people came out also that that I didn't know before and made a lot of new contacts and new new online friends through that through that common interest in, uh, in pedals. And all of a sudden I'm connecting a lot with guitarists, right? <laughs> More than before. Um, then, uh, you know, so how I've worked it into my performing is, you know, very often I, I get asked to do either public workshop demo or sometimes recitals. Uh, and usually it won't be a pure, you know, contemporary music recital or traditional recital. Usually it's a bit of both. Like even if someone asks me, it's a new music organization and they want me to do a tabla recital, I'll, I'll work a traditional solo into there. Um, so my recitals tend to be mixed, you know, between traditional solo and music by composers. But now instead of playing music by composers, sorry, composers, um, now I, I'm putting in little, I call it like comprovisations, we could say, right? Like partially composed, very much improvised also. Uh, pieces that I'm that I'm composing for tabla with pedals. So it's very much like your, you know, tabla with uh, fixed media kind of pieces, but it's live. The electronics are all generated live. Um, there's always an aspect of it that's uh, recognizable from performance to performance, but there's always a lot of items that are elements that are unpredictable. And you know that that's where the improvisation comes in because you know how the pedals will react, but it's never exactly the same each time. It could have to do with volume levels, tempos, all kinds of things. Um, and so there's a lot of variability to it, which I like. I mean, already you know part of the Indian classical tradition, improvisation is a big part of the tradition. So I, it doesn't bother me that <laughs> I like that. In fact, like that that's a, an asset to it that. You know, an advantage or a, you know, something I really like about it is that that I get to improvise a lot and go with the flow. So that's what's been happening now. So when when I'm being asked to do kind of a some kind of a solo tabla recital, I'm combining uh, traditional tabla with these uh, instead of pieces by composers, these pieces by me with, uh, with pedals. So I had a chance to kind of premiere some of these things actually at uh, Baylor in uh, Waco. Uh, last spring, uh, that's uh, Todd Mien School, and um, Basic uh, coming up, 
And uh, I have some recitals booked actually in the spring um, in Barcelona of all places, which is which is great. And there's a, a musical instrument museum there. And um, after that at um, Virginia Commonwealth VCU. Um, Justin Alexander School. I'll, I'll be I'll be coming there. So it's it's these mixed like uh, Indian classical slash tabla with pedals concerts, and we'll see how that how that goes because this is a you know, kind of a new paradigm for me. When you say comp improvise, is that the word you kind of came up with? Yeah, like comp comprovisations. Comprovisation. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's way better than comp improvise. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but but. When you're saying that, are is is the is it that the outline that you have like kind of an idea of where things will go, but the execution is is not there, or or is not 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 there is not completely done, or is it that you've you've said some some things you're just like I'm literally gonna do if it comes to my mind I'm gonna make it happen right mm-hmm. there and and whatever that is 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 this version of a piece. So I, I actually see it a lot like an Indian classical tabla solo. Like, let's say, you know, if I'm I'm driving from Montreal to Toronto, right, I'm using Canadian references, you know, you can just get on the main highway and go in a straight line, you know, so I know I'm going from A to B, right? But sometimes you can take little detours, right? Oh, that looks interesting. That big apple, what's that? You know, and then you go there and they sell apple pies, things like that. So, you know, the pieces are like mapped out in terms of, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to go to that. And then I'm going to go to that other thing. But in between those, there's room, you know, so maybe I do have some fixed rhythms that are pre-composed, right? Like motives, whether traditional or, or original, but it's more what the pedals are doing. I find in this case, that's really driving things, right? Because when the pedals are doing more rhythmic things, that lets you do certain things. When it's more free and you know spacey, you can't really put rhythmic things with that because sometimes it just becomes a big mess. Unless you want to create the big mess, that that's okay too. That's totally valid. <laughs> it's more like a sound worlds, like going from this one to that one to that one, and what happens along the way. And I'll, I know in advance, like this will be something more in time. This will be something more free, more spacious, more dense. Um, but there's quite a lot of freedom in there again, which, which I like, uh, I don't want to notate these things. I, I don't intend for other people to play these pieces, um, because that would be a challenge, right? You would need to either specify effect types very specifically, right? Uh, or you have to force people to buy the same pedals as you, uh, right? Which, which is not necessarily good for for creativity and you know the individual expression so it's more like this is something for myself i I don't really intend to like i'm going to publish these pieces and things like in a way it's like early electronic music like sometimes uh, electronic composers they would write some piece for a specific rack mount effects unit and then they would give you indications like preset number three this setting that setting that setting and if you didn't have that specific piece of gear you couldn't play the piece but usually you could only play the piece if the composer was there because they're the ones who had the gear. You know, so I, I definitely don't want to do that kind of thing. So I, I, it's, I, I'm just keeping it for myself. But the idea with the, the clinic at PASIC is to show people how, how easy it is really uh, as a way of getting into electronic music with percussion. 
Um, it's very straightforward. Like I said, like you don't have to have any programming knowledge or any technical knowledge, really. If you could plug in a microphone, you know, you could plug in some cables, you could turn knobs, right? <laughs> it, it's a very, very accessible way of getting into electronic music. Has the music you've been working on in this format been, has it also included pre-recorded items that you're playing with? Not yet. Uh, I'm trying to generate everything live myself, though I'll surely get into that at some point. Sometimes like I'll, I'll lay down like a loop with a kalimba or so, something like that, or a drone, you know, but I still like lay it down live and then, you know, but um, a lot of looping pedals, including one I have, you can preload audio files into it. And then I could just push a button and make my life easier and just have it play back, you know, yeah. the perfect loop without me having to make it live. Um, but I, ha I haven't gotten there yet. So I don't know. I'm having fun with with seeing what I can do live. And actually, a lot of the time, I'm not doing, like, I guess, traditional looping, if looping has become something traditional, you know, where someone lays down a groove, loops that, they lay down something else on top of that, they loop that. The kind of looping I'm doing is very imperfect, very glitchy. Because one of the things that got me into this was the idea of old reel-to-reel -reel tape. Yeah. Um, like bad reel to reel, like, you know, not, not a machine that's been kept in good condition, sure. you know, or, or an old tape delay and the artifacts that come out of that, the, the pitch variations that come out of that, like that, it was that aesthetic that really got me into this in the first place. Um, so when I'm tending to do loops, I'm, I'm tending to not do good loops, like, you know, so they're jumping and skipping, uh, and they're not working in a usual you know, groovy way that we would do it. So sometimes I set the loop length in, in, in a non-specific way. Like I'm not counting. I just set the length of a loop and I just play on top and play on top. So there, it creates actually really complex rhythmic relationships. You know, if you tried to notate that, <laughs> it'd be quite something. Um, but so I haven't been using these pedals, like maybe in, in quotations, the way you're supposed to, <laughs> because I'm going for that glitchy, Mm -hmm. uh you know like the tape has gone bad the machine is broken this kind of an aesthetic <laughs> yeah I, I hear you <laughs> it within uh tabla performance is this completely new are there other people who who do this kind of who do this kind of work or are working with uh live electronics in the way that you are I don't think the same way, but I'm definitely not the first one to to put tabla with electronics. Um, when I think of tabla with electronics, the first name that comes to mind is Talvin Singh. Um, he he's still active now, and he's actually doing. I I see on his social media he's doing things with pedals. Um, so he he started, I believe, in the in the he was very he became very well known more towards the late '90s. There's a kind of Asian underground scene. Uh, very like influenced by uh, like drum and bass, kind of part of the drum and bass genre. Um, and he's been at it uh, since then. Uh, but that's, you know, it's like uh, groovy music and, uh, you know, relating to uh, the dance music, electronic music, uh, DJ culture, that kind of stuff. But he's, he works with pedals, he works with effects, he works with a lot of stuff like that. Tabla, what, what makes it very accessible to this world of electronics is because 99% of the time we amplify tabla. 
Indian classical music has become an amplified genre, mm -hmm. right? It's only if you play a very small concert, maybe for 20 people in someone's home, maybe you play on amplified. But generally, even in a house concert can be amplified. But generally, most of it, like any stage performances are amplified. So already we're popping a mic on the tabla already. Um, so it's ready to go, right? As a like a, an electric instrument in a way. Then there's other issues, though, you know, technical issues to, to, to get through. Um, but it works really well. It's very natural. So, yeah, so Talvin Singh's been doing it for a long time. Even Zakir Hussain got into that for a while. There's a Karsh Kale also uh, in that Asian underground scene. But I don't think there's been, uh, you know, other than a few composers who have written, like, fixed media pieces. Uh, and I did have some pieces written for me, like, with Max MSP in the, in the early days. Um, I'm not aware, uh, like of, of people doing exactly like what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I can't be the only one, you know, it, it's very, like, like I said, it's very easy. You put a mic on the tabla, you run it through, uh, some pedals, anyone can do it. Um, and I'm hoping other people will, will do it as well. Um, but I don't think anyone's been coming at it from, from exactly this angle. For me, it's important that everyone know that this is, you know, not a very, you know, technical, difficult thing. I'm going to go, go over effects pedals in general, uh, talk about different effects types, and then talk about my approach, my pedal board, you know, why I made the choices that I made uh, with respect to Tabla specifically. But really, my goal is to show how accessible this is. So I don't want anyone to, to think like, oh, technology, this is going to be really difficult. This is going to be over my head. Like the whole point of this is it's very, very accessible and easy to do, and anyone can do it, uh, whether it's Tabla or kalimba or a snare drum for you know any instrument really it, it's something that's very easy for people to to get into and i think that electronics it's a natural extension of percussion right like varez i mean going from ionization to what was it poem electronic i think uh you know getting you know the electronic music uh it's natural for percussionists to get into electronic music so we don't have to wait for composers to do it for us. We can we can do it ourselves too. Next up is Gifford Howarth. Gif is the associate professor of music at Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania. And he will be moderating a marching panel discussion Thursday at 1 p.m. in room 201 with Matthew Ryan Kilgore called Teaching Mallet Percussion for Your Front Ensemble focusing on health awareness and longevity. The panel will also include Brian Dinkle, Andy Filipiak, and previous podcast guest from 2017, Lauren Teal. Here's Giff talking about his upcoming panel. This came about, uh, I'm a member of the, of the keyboard committee for for PAS. So I guess it's be the International Keyboard Committee. And we at our meeting last PASIC, we were informed that um, it was our year. I guess they do this little round robin kind of approach. It was our year to host or be in charge of one of these panel discussions. And I've been in the audience for several of these over over the years and and have always found them them fascinating. So some ideas were coming up around the room, and, and I was the one that actually brought the idea up um, with, with somewhat of the topic that we're going with. But it was a, in a nutshell, the focus is 
as instructors, how do we manage the um, those long 10, 11, 12 hour days of playing for front ensembles within a a drum corps situation, within an indoor percussion situation, and within a marching band situation. So band camp, for you know, for instance. We are the one musical element, um, or I could even say, take it a step further, we are the one element of of the competitive atmosphere, the, that, that competitive group, that does not have anything to do with the visual block. So we are not learning dots. Others are. Color guard is. You know, obviously the brass section, the wind section, the drum line. So maintaining that full day schedule where you are pretty much playing, be it sectionals, be it music ensemble. So um, there are, I remember back when I was with the cadets um, back in the day, that was something that, that we had to kind of manage. So, so that's the topic. It's both the, how do you take care of the physicality of having the students play all day long and also the mental aspect of keeping them focused, um, breaking up the day a little bit. So that was the overall topic, and it, it went across pretty well, which is great, in the room. And in the room were people like Tom Burrett, Nancy Zeltzman, others, who are not 100% directly connected with this activity, but I got the feeling they understand how popular this is and they understand the importance of this particular topic. So, um, so we submitted, submitted for it and got it off the top of my head. I do not remember the exact title. I should, but I don't, but it's a long title, but it's all about the physical attributes and also the mental connection with that specifically the front ensemble, um, keeping them engaged, dealing with some of the physical situations that we can deal with, with playing four mallet technique for an extended period of time. Who else is on the panel? So the panel, so actually, you're moder- since you're moderating, right, I guess, who's exactly. on the panel? Right. So on the panel, we have Brian Dinkle, who's from uh, Blue Devils and RCC Indoor among several high schools out in California. Um, we have um, Ryan Kil- Kilgore. Is, is, he's my co – Ryan's also part of the, of the keyboard committee. So Ryan and I, after it was established this thing was going to happen, and then Ryan and I have kind of tag-teamed the, 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 the process. But Ryan's on the panel. He is of Blue Coats and um, Rhythm X fame, also a bunch of high schools in the Midwest – um, and, and he's he's a fellow college professor, so um, we can always kind of throw in a, a little nugget from that aspect of things. Um, Lauren Teal, who has been with Troopers Forever, um, also involved with several of the high school programs throughout Texas. Andy Filipiak, and I always butcher the last name, but he's at Woodlands right now, Woodlands High School in Texas. We wanted to, when Ryan and I were putting together, um, and our list started with like eight people, and we were informed by PAS, you're only allowed to have four panelists plus the moderator. So we had to obviously edit the list down. 
I was the one that's mentioned, I want to make sure I have somebody from Texas that is directly connected with one of these monster programs because Texas is, it's, it's a very unique situation. Um, but it's, there's a lot of them and they are looked at both inside the state and also outside of the state. People look at some of these big programs at Texas from a standpoint of, all right, here's how they do it. Here's how I want to do it. So Ryan knew Andy better than I did. So Ryan reached out first and then Andy and I had some, had some conversations, but see, he's also involved with, um, mandarins with, mm-hmm. with the DCI aspect of things. And he's also been involved with aspects within the WGI parameter. To be honest, our target audience audience for this is not the upper level DCI WGI um, groups. It is the lower level, especially the A class, um, maybe lower level of open with WGI with the instructors. But then the masses of marching bands that are out there um, that may not have the resource where you have 15 music instructors, you know, and and I know that it's out there where you have people teaching percussion that aren't necessarily percussionists. So it's like getting them some some information from people that have been in the trenches. And that was another thing that we wanted to focus on. The people that are they that are there day in and day out with these long marathon days. So those are the four. So we got Brian, we've got um, Matt, Lauren, and Andy on the panel. What have you noticed in terms of when you see a program that's maybe not taking care of those students in the in the way that you would like them to? What are things that you notice about either their playing or attitude or anything that physical health? What what's things kind of come up? Yeah, I think the physical health is the big thing. Um, you know, you can see a young group, um, you know, percussion so visually oriented, you know. So you see incorrect technique. You can see it. You don't need to hear it. Of course, right. we can hear it too, but but you can see it. So the pre we're going to put a microphone connected to every you know acoustic keyboard instrument so this is obviously going back a little bit but we used to see what i like to use the term industrial arts class all the time where it was like they were just it was all out warfare on the instruments right it would hurt the instruments there was a lot of tension you know, you could see it from the shell, the, the shoulder all the way down to the to the hands, a lot of tension in the playing um, and a lot of aggressiveness. And part of the reason for this was it was hard for the front ensemble to be heard. Right. And that's not necessarily the front ensemble's fault, nor is it today, to be honest. But, you know, we have what they're playing along with sometimes is just always loud. Yeah. And and then part of the miking aspect kind of adjusted that a little bit. But that's what we would see. You'd see bad technique. I still see, you know, some some um some rough technique today, but nowhere near as much as I used to like 15 20 years ago. And I think the reason for that is the instruction has gotten better. We have people that we have a lot more of college trained percussion majors that are involved in the activity 
if you go back 20 years ago, most of the members were not college music majors. Most of the, you know, I would say a bunch of the instructors still were, but not all of them. There was still that, that teach from within, you know, you had somebody that marched with a certain group for three, four years, and then they aged out and then they started teaching. So how they were taught when they started just kind of snowballed into how they would be teaching. And it wasn't necessarily always the best from a physicality standpoint. Um, Just thinking of some other things I would notice, you know, you'd see the students kind of you know, go like this all the time. You know, there's a break. Rubbing their, rubbing their hands. Right. Yeah, yeah rubbing their arms. their arms. And, you know, so it's, we would see that a lot. And, and you know, with some of the formalic grips that really have, have just skyrocketed in popularity at the high school level, um, you know, some of them, you've really got to be careful because if you're using bad technique, tendonitis is very easy to, to come by. So, but again, it's all been getting better. Mm-hmm. But our target audience is those folks that may not have the background. Look, let's be honest. It's the drumline based person that needs to teach the front ensemble. So they're used to their approach and and it's different. There are aspects of it that are different when when approaching keyboard instruments and approaching some of these four mallet techniques. And a lot of that you're looking at how a battery person is not necessarily and in many most many programs particularly if they have if they have resources the battery person is not the front ensemble person right and so they they have that communication has to be yeah clear and obvious but you need to realize because i know in in our let's be honest in our PASIC world Mm -hmm. in our wgi world and in our dci world we're dealing with the upper echelon we are not dealing with the majority. So people, I think people seem to, they, they forget that. Um, now, I know in the audience, we're, we're going to have that type of representation. But I'm also hoping that we get some people that, you know, that are not as comfortable. And the people that are not, like I said earlier, are not real mallet percussion folks, but they find themselves in these roles. Over 80% of the marching bands in the country have no idea what PASIC is. Right. Now, there's a huge, just this mass volume of, of, of groups out there. And it's kind of one of these things where it would be great if we somehow found, after we do this, if we somehow found a, an additional way to get this message out there. We're always in our own little bubble and our own little bubble and the mass from a pure, if we do the numbers, you know what I mean? If we crunch the numbers, I mean, our bubble is heavily in the minority of what's going on. I mean, we're dealing with the NFL, NBA, NCAA level of this activity. We are not dealing with, you know, the quote unquote high school level, if you know what I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it's something that people need to realize. One of the things that I, that came to mind, even though this is not what you said, but you, you were mentioning kind of that the front ensemble tends to just be playing like they play, they play, they play while everyone's doing the marching is incorporating mm-hmm. the playing into the, the marching and visual aspect. But I've certainly noticed over the years with certain front ensembles that they're, they've 
attempted to put in as much visual and is is that one way that some of them have kind of tried to kind of match i guess maybe what is going on behind them sure yeah i mean and and it's a lot of the times it's a it's a true form of what i call and this is a term that we throw around in the in the judging activity all the time this nonverbal communication Mm-hmm. The the body, you know, that that them looking at each other and that slight little body pulse and that that sense of prep, yeah. that's all choreographed. And right. then sometimes the choreograph goes, you know, they'll make some minor adjustments to it. So it fits within the theme of the show. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that could very easy. That's something that's that's a non playing aspect although it's connected for sure but there's something that's that that the instructors are spending some time on they're getting the uniformity down with that along with getting the uniformity down with the with the performing and that's something that that's gotten better i mean i remember back in the days where you would have and it's not it was never the students mm-hmm. Concern. It was never the student's fault. I hate using some of these stronger words, but you could tell they were taught this where, okay, if we're going to do a musical crescendo, our body needs to portray an uplifting motion. And we'd have these people where they bend down, their chins are right next to the keyboard. And then as they're crescendoing, the music is crescendoing, their body is, you know, lifting up. But it was amazing how many times the physical look of it was so much stronger than the actual musical crescendo, the actual musical <laughs> moment. Oh, yeah. The, the, the amount of time would be like, yeah, let's not be so concerned to how we're, how we're looking with the crescendo. We need right. to make sure we're actually playing a crescendo in that moment. So those things we don't we don't come across much anymore. But I really get a kick and I really appreciate the nonverbal communication that's going on because that's really helping with the overall ensemble cohesiveness of the front ensemble plus the connection of the front ensemble with, with that, that musical soundtrack, that movie soundtrack that's coming at them from, from behind. Talking about the importance of warming up. Um, and then the approaches to warming up that that these four individuals have. Um, is there a certain sequence they use and why? Um, so and the importance of stretching, you know, from a physical standpoint, and then also how they break up the day from, uh, you know, I remember and I, I shared this with the with the panel on one of our recent Zoom meetings. It was I remember back when I was with the cadets and we'd be on the road. And it was one of those days where it was just sectional, 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 because they're, you know, they're ping-ponging between the guard, the drumline, and the brass learning the new dots. Right. So um, you know, and it this wasn't me. This was our full-time, you know, front ensemble. Uh, tech at the time, Jamie, he came up with these great ideas and these, this just mental breaks. And he would on the spot create like an obstacle course. 
So we're in some we're we're in some high school in the middle of Iowa, and he's looking around and he's figuring out. Okay, and it would literally be like a 15, 20 minute thing, but just to break up the day. So that was something that uh, you know that's one of the points of of discussion that that, that we're gonna um, approach also. We're we're purposely going to stay away from the conversation of the use of electronics because that's a whole other can of worms. Um, yeah. So we're and then any of the you know with the the you know what do you do when a student comes to you and say you know hey you know that bottom of my elbow you know it kind of it's starting to go numb or it hurts when I when I do an inside mallet rotation you know how do we how do you know how do they address that and you know so those are the I think I got I think I remembered both you know most of them with these panel discussions it's interesting you know the 50 minutes just flies by and we're even thinking of the aspect of not all four of them are going to answer every single bullet point you know yeah. we're going we want to make sure we get through this stuff and and um because I know it's very easy for four people sharing their ideas we we you know we could get through two bullet points and we're out of time. Yeah, so those are the things: the the importance of warm up of the warm up, the importance of stretching, how to break up the day, how to deal with or how you know how do you approach the situation where the student comes to you and is like, "Hey, my wrist hurts." Breaking up the day. I forget if I already mentioned that, but yeah. so those are the. Those are the main main bullet points we're going to address. Yeah. Well, it's it's really hard with both 50 minutes. You have all these, uh, you know, all these wonderful clinicians who are who are also who could who could do this whole presentation on their own. I mean, right. they could all, yeah. you know, eat very easily. And, yeah. and so it's like and then you've got to kind of make it bounce around a little bit. And yep. no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I will, you know, I'm going to try to stay out of the conversation as much as possible. But I may, you know, chime in with just a couple little things. Because, see, I've been removed from their, from their world from the yeah. instruction standpoint. But back in the late 90s through the early 2000s, I mean, I was doing a lot of it. And I know the activity is different. Than, mm -hmm. But techniques are the same, you right. know. The actual playing techniques and and you know those of us that know about you know the different four mallet grips you know there's that that inherent little issues we got to keep an eye out with the stevens grip you know with the pinky and the ring finger being in control of that outside mallet and that that in of itself just kind of opens up um situations that that we need to keep an eye on And finally, on today's portion of the PASIC preview is Karen Yu. Karen's the leader of the Upstrike Project with co-founder Eugene Kwan, and will be performing alongside previous podcast guests Matthew Lau and Abby Fisher. They'll be performing the work A Logica 3 by Facundo Negri as part of the New Music Research Concerts Thursday at 3 p.m. in Room 120. Here's Karen talking about the work her group is performing and some more background about how this work relates to life in Hong Kong at this time. 
I'll be bringing my grip, the Upstruck Project, um, to PASIC this year um, with another core member, Eugene Kwong. And very luckily, uh, my other co-founder, Matthew, will also be there with um, his duo. And we're doing a, a, a dual piece. I'm doing a dual piece with Eugene um, called Alogica 3 by um, Negri, this composer from um, Argentina. We actually uh, had this opportunity to do this Asian premiere uh, not so long ago um, in 2020 in a uh, cocktail pairing concert we did in Hong Kong. And we're very, very excited to be able to bring this to PASIC this year. Um, yeah, so that's the piece we're doing there. Tell me more about the work itself, why why it fits this this particular, uh, you know, new music item here. Sure. Um, this piece is a percussion dual scored for a prepared vibraphone, saliphone, metal objects, and tape. Um, the piece um, actually is titled after a poem by a Chilean diplomat, also I believe it's a Nobel laureate, a Gabriela Mistral's poem, uh, which I've trouble um, speaking the name of the poem, but um, the poem conveys a feeling of lost alienation and disconnect, um, disconnection with her homeland of Chile while serving aboard as a diplomat for many years. And um, the tape actually consists of Mr. L's reciting the poem, the sound taken from the text and instruments. Um, we actually, as a group, found this piece really resonating with what we're experiencing in Hong Kong. Um, some of the people, a lot of people are leaving Hong Kong for good because um, they're finding the city has changed a lot and a lot of the things that used to be offered to them aren't here anymore. And so a lot, actually, many, many people have relocated a lot of people in Canada, a lot of people in UK, and a lot of people in Australia. So there's this um, starting, uh, there's just people trying to leave Hong Kong and finding their new home. But also there are us who are like in the city, but finding a bit difficult to call a home because so much has changed. And it's a bit of the question of identity, but also um still calling it home by name, but not finding the elements of home in this place. Um, so it's a bit of that, and we find it really resonating, and it really represents what we um, see in Hong Kong, and we'd like to bring that to PASIC to share it and also to, um, you know, travel to people here. As I know, um, PASIC has a lot of people coming from everywhere, so it's great to be reconnected to this piece because it represents us. Gotcha. Um, for those who are not, and I'll count myself here, who, who may not be as up on what's been going on in Hong Kong, the items that you're talking about, are they a very recent situation or has this been something that's been going on for decades and it's more obvious, I guess? I don't know. I'm not sure, but. Um, long story short, um, since the handover from um, the UK to China in 1997, there's been drastic changes in the city um we obviously we call people we're, we call ourselves from hong kong but the, the deeper question is what does it mean to be from this city after this handover because um we still have the official languages in both um, english and chinese but also um the uh governance is different now and there is the new national security law that's been introduced very recently and um, there was this very recent um, political um, 
political um, issues coming up uh, that actually has started way before, but um, it has got more intense since 2014 and in 2019. And uh, we're seeing that um, there are more restrictions in terms of um, freedom of speech, but also um, our our freedom to, you know, speak speak what we have to say, or even some of the schools has changed um, that we have to go through a lot of um, national, um, what are those called? We have to go through, um, so students in Hong Kong have to learn um, Mandarin, but also to learn more about the country and how they could be more um, loyal to the country, etc. So these ideas are new, being introduced recently. And we question is that, um, has our values changed as um, our uh, cultural uh, relationship with China um, has gone deeper, really? And also, um, we're seeing a lot of people from um, different places in Hong Kong, but we also are seeing less expats in Hong Kong. So a lot of people are also leaving, uh, finding the city less interested, less in interesting than before. So what are the causes behind this? And um, I, I believe there's so many different answers and Right now, it's so hard for me to articulate, knowing that the national security law is in place. Um, I'm. This is the, as far as I can talk about it, perhaps. Right. So, yeah. Um, in terms of what's happening in Hong Kong, this is what's happening in Hong Kong. The development of the group of your of of this group is has happened during uh, is is more recent. I, I'm going to assume, right? We founded the group. Well, Matt and I had this idea of finding this group in 2017. And we wrote our first grant um, that year and actually launched the group in 2018, December. Um, our first concert was actually um, during a bunch of premiere of pieces by Lansky. It was a full concert of um, percussion quartets because there were a lot of pieces premiered in Asia, but not in Hong Kong, actually. A lot of the good work that were being done by Third Coast Percussion, Soul Percussion. And these works are significant in the um in our scheme of things in terms of a percussion society and the scene and we've never heard them in hong kong so we decided to premiere a bunch of these pieces to bring them back here in hong kong since um a lot of these issues have emerged um actually a few members of our group have left hong kong already and mm. um i've also met and i have also been thinking what it means to be in a group that's like already in kind of in diaspora state, uh, yeah. whereas there are some members in um, North America, but there's also some members in other parts of Asia. Our group has become more project-based. It depends on what kind of grant monies and what kind of uh, partnership collaborations we do. And sometimes we'll have, we're very lucky to have Matt back recently in September. And we're very lucky to have Rebecca Lloyd-Jones from Brisbane visiting us. Yeah, a lot of these um, projects are fairly, uh, it's fairly flexible, which is a very good thing because we all kind of have our interest um, around it, but we're not always um, available to be, you know, all about this group and doing all these concerts um, every year, having a season, etc. Maybe that is not so much what we're interested in, but we're very much in interested in bringing what we know of different places and bring them to Hong Kong. Um, also um, educating um, the Hong Kong audience and educating Hong Kong percussionists into playing chamber music pieces because chamber music is less of a thing in Hong Kong, I have to say. Um, it's it's a bit, it has been a bit of um, a difficult um, situation for us to advocate um, chamber music playing and uh, working with composers, working with living composers. Uh, also um, 
having uh, cross-disciplinary collaborations. We've worked with light artists, we've worked with pathologists, um, we've worked with video artists, etc. So those are some of the things that we are very interested in and hopefully be able to do more in Hong Kong soon. What does it take to get you all here for an extended period of time? I mean, you're, you, you said before we started that you're you're basically you're here, then you're going back, then you're coming back. And so just to kind of what are some of the logistics to just try to make this happen that you're dealing with? I guess going to PASIC, it's uh, quite a crazy trip for us. It's long. We're, we're talking about a completely different time zone. And um, actually, um, Eugene also has engagements in Hong Kong with the orchestra. So for us to come here, it's it's quite a trip, but then we're very lucky to be supported by the Hong Kong Arts Development Council. Um, we have their cultural exchange grant in place that will support um, our trip to PASIC also doing this um, piece. Um, the funding structure in Hong Kong is relatively uh, flexible, and that allows us to do these kind of trips. As I just uh, recently did a show with Ken Ueno in Toronto, and also doing a small talk at UC Berkeley. Um, these kind of exchange that I am able to do is mostly supported by the council. And uh, we're hoping to do more of these in the future because we see that there is um, there is a need for us to reconnect with the percussion community internationally. And PASIC is a very, um, is a perfect location for us. And it's very good to um, see what others are doing, um, especially at the New Music Research very excited for that new music research there because it has an absolutely completely different vibe in terms of getting to know what percussion means in many different um in the spectrum yeah. of percussion and which PASIC is um is doing a very good job demonstrating that there is a huge spectrum of what percussion means in different places um and it's it's great to be there for new music research as that's what um the abstract project is about um we're very interested in um doing new stuff, new works. Um, yeah, slowly kind of finding our identity in that. Thanks again to Ejen, Tim, Sean, Gifford, and Karen for their contributions to today's preview show. I sincerely hope you'll all check these presentations out because I think they'll be very good. No rave this week, aside from saying, go to PASIC. It's always been a great experience for the first time or the 20-somethingth time or something, whatever. I don't know. However long I've been going. But if you go and we run into each other, please say hello. I am always happy to make new connections. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at PeteZambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time tomorrow for part two of the 2023 PASIC preview episodes. Until then.